Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone. Ron Spomer back with another Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast. And I'm happy to be here with you today. And I have some answers and some questions. Usually the questions come first. also have a little story I would like to share with you about some recent deer hunts that I did. They really are juxtapositions because one of them was a commercial hunt with an outfitter, wonderful outfitter, wonderful lodge, wonderful food. The, the personalities were great. They just did everything they possibly could to make that trip a success. He had lots of trail cameras out. He knew where his deer were moving. I mean, it's just a complete package deal. And it's the way a lot of hunters hunt whitetails these days. They have trail cameras, food plots. Sometimes they'll put out corn. Well, often in many states, they'll put out corn or apples or some other kind of bait. And it's legal in those states. And it's become a pretty common way of hunting whitetail deer. And I think mostly because so many people have such small areas on which they get to hunt. It's not like in the old days where you could roam across miles and miles and thousands of acres of native grasslands or forests or something. So when you're in a smaller place like that, it kind of pays to sort of groom things to work for you. Keep the deer coming in, keep them around your area and that sort of thing. So that was one hunt and it worked out beautifully. I mean, the uh, gentleman, his name was Micah. Collins and he runs Big Kansas Whitetails and he put me in an area where he had been seeing a good buck pretty regularly on his trail cameras every couple of days or something and he had some scrape lines that they were working and then he had food plot and everything else and he actually succeeded in stuffing me into a box blind which is pretty hard to do not because I'm so big I don't fit into a box blind because I just don't like being in a box blind it's kind of like uh, I don't know it's taking taking a shower with your clothes on <laughs> I like to have the open air around me and be able to listen and, and look around and see everything that's happening and feel the whole experience <laughs> but it was raining cats and dogs the first afternoon so I was more than happy to not be out in the shower at that point point. 
And then the next morning, it was pretty cold and it actually started snowing for a bit when the rain let up. And once it broke out, I was going to get out of the stand and hunt. But before that could happen, here comes Mr. Buck. And the crazy way it happened was I'd seen the photos of it on his trail camp, so I knew what I was looking for. There was an unusual point sticking off the G2, a little sticker point. And as we drove in that morning, turn into the gate to go to the blind. Here is that buck walking across the trail. And <laughs> he walked into the trees. And Micah said, There's your buck. He says, Now, if things work out like they usually do, he will spend the early morning checking his scrape lines, making new scrapes and all that. And then he'll probably come past your area because he usually does, usually shows up on that camera. Two hours later, here he came. And I was able to get some photographs of him. I shot some video as he was coming in. Set the camera aside. I don't know how I kept my composure through all of this. Picked up my crossbow that I was hunting with for the first time. It's another new one. <laughs> and got a nice 20-yard shot on that buck. And that really rekindled my love for bow hunting. I can't pull bows anymore because of some rotator cuff injuries. Although, I may be back in shape enough to give that a try. And I'd kind of like to do that. But that was a great hunt. Now, the juxtaposition was the very next hunt in South Dakota. Completely do it yourself. Went with an old buddy. And he has just a small farm that he has permission to hunt on. No trail cameras, no food plots, no nothing. It's just go out there and see what you can find. <laughs> and it was really interesting because the two of us are old enough and experienced enough that we pretty much knew what to do. In whitetail country, especially in an open terrain farm, mixed farm ground, open prairie country like in South Dakota, you just figure out where the food source is. And where the heavy bedding cover is, and you figure, well, that at the crack of dawn, those deer are going to be eating. And then when they're done, they're going to cross over to where they want to bed. And if it's during the rut, the bucks will be roaming around looking for the does and something could happen at any time of day. And that's just the way it worked. It was bitter cold, zero degrees opening morning. We were freezing them off. <laughs> and we didn't see all that much activity, but they were doing what we anticipated they would do. So in the afternoon, when the temperature came up, we returned to that area, sat where we could watch the travel routes between that feed field and the bedding area, and of course, expecting them to come out of the bedding area. And sure enough, here came a doe, and she was pretty much running, looking behind her like there's probably a buck harassing her. And she came within 200 yards and stopped frozen out there in that open grass field. I had a doe tag, I had a 300 H&H rifle, and I took a neck shot for perfect harvest for meat. Now we've got a beautiful doe on the ground for meat, but we didn't go up and celebrate, go out and get her. We stayed put. Why did we do that? Because there was probably that buck following her, and George had a buck tag. <laughs> so we sat for another, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes, and here came the buck. Sent trailing that doe, as they do during the rut. Got out to where she lay, and he was startled. He jumped back and looked around for a bit. Then he started circling her and stood stock still, and George took about a 200-yard shot with his 244 Remington. Look that one up. That's an odd cartridge. And he got his buck. So within about an hour, we got two deer and just sat right on the open fence line. No blinds, as I said, no bait or anything else. And that was such an interesting polar opposite of the previous hunt. And it just reminded me of how many different ways there are to hunt. There's no absolute. There's no right or wrong. 
If as long as you're following the law, the rules and the regulations, whatever works for you and appeals to your style and your ethics, go for it. Because that's the beauty of this whole thing. It's not like so many other things in life that we can do where we have different regulations, uh, especially when you're talking about a game or a sport. Now, I use those terms a little bit hesitantly with hunting because I don't want to mean frivolous pursuit or something you don't have to do. Hunting is an an ancient, atavistic, and necessary aspect of life for predatory animals. And humans are predatory animals, always have been. We have stereoscopic vision. We have uh, opposable thumbs with which we can grasp things and make tools. And while lions and wolves and other predators use speed and fangs and claws to capture their game, Well, some of them use poison like rattlesnakes, (laughs) and some of them use traps like spiders. But humans use the tools that we invent, and then our intelligence and our eyesight, that's how we get our game. But we're definitely made to be predatory animals. And all through history, I think we've been doing this. Of course, we eat vegetables and fruits and things too. We're omnivores. But going hunting is just a natural part of being a human. Some of us have an sort of an intrinsic need to do it. And I certainly am one of those people. And you probably are too, if you're listening to this channel. So go go out there, guys, and just enjoy it. I just had such a great time on both of these hunts for different reasons, but they were all wonderful hunts. And I saw a lot of wildlife, turkeys and squirrels and ducks and geese and pheasants and quail, you name it. And it just makes one's life so much richer. All right. Now that my little story is over, we're going to get to our reader questions and answers and corrections. But before I do, I want to raise this little cup right here, which has a photograph of some wood ducks up in a tree with lots of red berries on it. It's a photograph I took just before Christmas one year. It was an absolutely spectacular evening. And I got these wood ducks eating crab apples out of that tree. And it was a real treat. I'd never seen such a thing before, and and I haven't seen it since. But wow, what a special time that was. So I put that on a mug and we have it on the Ron Spomer Outdoors store. So if you go to ronspomeroutdoors.com website, you can find the store and buy some fun things like these cups. We're going to be adding more wildlife photos to these. I've got some really cool elk and a really neat buffalo recently that I picked up with a lot of frost on his head and his beard. Um, We've got t-shirts and caps and just lots of Fluff stuff that nobody really needs, but sometimes they're fun to get. and They might make a good Christmas present for the hunter who is everything. All right, now get some corrections and whatnot. Here's something from Mark. And it's regarding a video I did comparing the 6.5 Creedmoor with the 243 Winchester. Mark says, hey, I love listening to you, Ron, but I have to pull you up on this one. Gravity is constant. Yeah, that's true. What changes is the horizontal distance to the target. Oh, he's referencing angled shooting question that I answered. If your target is 600 meters away at a 45 degree angle, it's uh, only approximately 430 meters away on the level. So adjusting your scope to 600 meters will see you shooting high. That is true. Adjusting it for a 430 meter shot and you'll be right on the nose. Glad when I listened further that you were pretty much in agreement on this, but the gravel gravitational effect isn't different. So 
I apologize, Mark, if it if it struck you that I was saying the gravitational effect is different. Uh, maybe I did put it that way, but I guess, as you said here, we are pretty much in agreement on what's happening. And that is that, of course, gravity is always pulling at 32 feet per second, accelerating at 32 feet per second, pretty much horizontally, you know, to the cent- from the center of the Earth. So wherever you are on the globe, it's pulling straight down if you're on the horizontal or your bullet is on the horizontal. But then when you angle it like that, the gravity is still pulling the same velocity and everything else. It's just pulling it at this angle. So it's going to be a little bit different. And there are different ways of interpreting that. Yours is definitely one of them, pretty popular one. Just forget about the vertical distance, but then know what the horizontal distance is, and that's what you have to adjust your sighting for. So you're right. And thank you for that one. A little bit of clarification. This one is Moonray, about barrel break-in. I get a lot of questions and responses on this barrel break-in stuff. Hey, in answer to the first question, I think what Ron is trying to say is, yes, the energy of a bullet is calculated by, oh boy, here we go into some physics numbers that I don't quite understand. It's calculated by 0.5 mv carat 2. I think that means squared. But the rate of energy loss is dependent on the ballistic coefficient related to aerodynamics, not the mass. Oh boy, this is getting confusing. (laughs) Einstein's E equals MC squared applies to the rest energy of mass. If the mass was changed into energy, as is apparent in nuclear reactions, you're losing me here, Moon Ray. (laughs) For a moving object, the faster it loses energy, the more quickly it slows down. Bingo. You got that one right, and I understood it. This is not really dependent on mass, as Ron touched on. Ballistic coefficient is the figure that shooters should focus on. I agree on the last sentence, too. I'm not quite understanding all the stuff in the middle there, but what I want to say is that mass is a part of ballistic coefficient. The ballistic coefficient of a bullet includes mass as an essential part of its measurement. So you have the mass of the bullet, the diameter of the bullet, and then the form or shape of the bullet. Those three things add up to make ballistics coefficient. So mass is definitely a part of it. I don't see what that has to do with barrel break-in, but I must have said something in barrel break-in about uh, that very idea. All right. Good one, Moon Ray, I think. <laughs> you probably know more than I do. One of the one of the problems I have with these presentations is that I'm just a layman. I come at this stuff from experience and a little bit of reading and research I've done over the years as a layman, but I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a physicist. I'm not any of these advanced degree people who think that way. I am a writer. I do pretty well with a language and not so well with mathematics and physics. Okay. Brad, this one is in reference to something I did on the 264 Winchester Magnum. Ron, I usually agree with you, but this video is the most skewed I've ever seen from you. Uh Uh-oh. Most 264 Win Mags are a 1 and 9 twist, which will not stabilize a 143 ELDX bullet that I used in the example. You also skewed the BC on the 145 ELD bullet, which actually has a BC of 0.536. I don't remember what I called it, but I would assume I took it out of the book, so it should have been right. The other thing I noticed is you used the highest BC bullet you could for the 264, but didn't use the equivalent 162 ELDX bullet in the 7mm. I understand mistakes and misinformation, but this whole data sheet that you came up with was not what I was expecting in a comparison, which is his polite way of telling me I was biased in my report and I fudged my numbers to make that happen. I didn't. I really am not biased on this one. 
I tried to find the best good high BC hunting bullet in each of those that I could. I may have not used the 162 ELDX in it just because I don't always like to use the same manufacturer's bullets um, just to be fair and plug other brands because there's so many good ones out there, but I usually look for something that's fairly equivalent and or I will look for the highest BC bullet in a particular caliber that I can for my examples, uh, as long as I do that with both. And I think that's what I did on this one. But your points are well taken. And I think what we want to come away with from this, Brad, is that whenever you folks are doing well, seeing videos and or reading materials on ballistics, you do need to keep in mind that there are all these little numbers that can change to skew the results one way or another. So what I really like to see is people who write in and with this kind of research and, and indicate that they are doing further research. That's the whole idea, guys. I can give you some names and numbers and details, but then I would like for you to start diving into this stuff. Check those Belixis calculators and hand-loading manuals and whatnot and figure out just how much velocity you really can expect out of your rifle. Or better yet, get a chronograph and chronograph your loads. Man, does that tell you something. And then check the BCs on these different bullets. And several people have also written in recently and said, Brand X is not giving you straight numbers on their BC. Well, whether they are or not, I think it's important to note that the BCs of any particular bullet change with its velocity and the rifle you're shooting it in. Usually they're pretty close and they remain fairly close, but they can change. So you always have to run these numbers through the ballistics calculators and then test them in the field with long range shooting. If it says your bullet's going to drop at 400 yards, 16 inches, and you find out that it's actually dropping 18 inches, that means your BC is not living up to its claims or your rifle changed it a little bit, something like that. So always do some more research. Those are good ones, guys. I appreciate that. Now we're going to get to some new questions for which I can screw up the answers. Then you can send in some more corrections. This just never ends. All right. This is from James. And he says, hey, I live in the eastern shore of Maryland. Which is the best cartridge for white-tailed deer? Now, some of us might think this is kind of a silly question because we, uh, being experienced, know there is no best cartridge. But yet, a lot of people look for this, especially new hunters. I mean, I would do the same thing if I were, say, getting into some some new sport uh, that required equipment. What's the best? I like to get the best. I even do like research on tires for my truck. What's the best rated tire? Gets the best mileage. Just the quietest, good in the snow, and all that stuff. So I can't blame James for asking this. It's a good, useful question. Problem, James, is that. There is no best cartridge. <laughs> and that's why there are so many cartridges. And there are podcasts like this that debate this stuff because it's endless. We are always arguing about, ah, mine's better than yours. My dog's better than your dog. <laughs> but I can give you some rough ideas. What you're looking for in a good whitetail cartridge. And Eastern Shore of Maryland, I would imagine you've got some dense forest, some big open fields, probably some big marshlands where the deer come out and you're going to be shooting long range. So you need to figure out roughly how far might you want to shoot or have to shoot, or are you just going to sit in a stand and shoot 150 yards in an opening in a woods or something like that. That will all 
help you decide which cartridge is going to work best for you. Then you need to figure out how much recoil you want to use, absorb when you're shooting. Uh, Would you rather have more or less? And then mm, the rifle you enjoy handling, a short action versus a long action versus a magnum action, which is even longer. How much weight you want in your rifle. If you can take a lot of weight because you're not climbing mountains or anything, and I imagine there aren't too many on the eastern shore of Maryland, you can probably get away with a lighter weight rifle. Come out here to Idaho, and I think you're not going to enjoy carrying a 10-pound rifle up the mountains. You might want to go down to six pounds like I do. So all of those things are going to factor in. But as for the cartridge, if you land somewhere in the middle, like a 7mm 08 Remington or its equivalent, and there are many equivalents, or a 308 Winchester or its equivalent, 6.5 Creedmoor or its equivalent, those are just darn good choices. And there are a lot of cartridges that fit in there. So what you want to look for when you're considering those cartridges in addition to availability and cost, because 708s are a little tougher to find than a 308. Um, but you look at the ballistic charts and see if there's a significant difference in the drops and the drifts and the energy on target. You'll find that there isn't. Really, you can get, get by with any of those. And then in the older cartridges that have been proven for decades and decades, you've got 30 out 6 270. 280 Remington, a lot of good ones in the standard length actions. Or you can go with the modern stuff, which are the the shorter, fatter cartridges, or even the standard length, fatter cartridges that have more horsepower. They're essentially magnums in their performance, but they don't call too many of them magnums anymore because magnum has fallen out of favor in what's coming into favor is some sort of a precision or accuracy title, like the PRC cartridges. But really, when it comes to the actual animal being shot, terminated effectively, it doesn't make much difference. It's just up to you as a hunter to be able to shoot well. So get yourself a cartridge that's available, affordable, in a rifle that you enjoy and like and fits you very well. And the deer are going to hit the ground just as well with one over the other. Good question. This is uh, someone called Ready Already. And Ready asks, when you are shooting... Up, oh, uphill, you're fighting gravity more than when you're shooting downhill. So that affects your velocity. So shouldn't you drop more? So up should drop more. Yeah, that is common sense thinking. And that's what I used to think too till I dived into this uphill, downhill shooting stuff. And what what it turns out to be is that even though you're right, you got to remember the velocity of your bullet, 3,000 feet per second. And then the gravity's pull is 32 feet per second. But over that first second of flight, gravity has got to pick up the speed, you know, so it's starting from a stop, essentially, and the bullet starts to accelerate down with gravity at 32 feet per second. So it's really only going to fall at 16 feet per second over that first second. So it takes 16 feet per second away from the 3,000 feet per second bullet flight, and the time it gets there, it, it ends up being so negligible, you can't even tell the difference. So then it comes down to that trigonometry thing, or as our earlier commenter said, it's like figure on your horizontal distance, not the vertical distance. So good question, though, (laughs) because I think that's a real common perception. I certainly had it. I figured, gosh, if you're shooting downhill, the gravity is pulling your bullet and accelerating it, so you should shoot high. But uphill, it should be just the opposite, but it's not. Regardless, up or down, your bullet's going to strike higher. Oh boy, Havoc asks, oh, he says, we don't have rifled shotguns in South Africa. 
So our only option is a rifled slug. I don't know if that's true or not. You're there, I'm not. Um, maybe someone else from South Africa can correct us if it's wrong. I can't imagine why you wouldn't have a rifled shotgun in South Africa, unless there's some sort of a regulation against them. But what I want to comment on here is your last sentence. Our only option is a rifled slug. That may be, but I want to make a qualifier on rifled slug. And I'm doing the quote sign here for those of you just listening. Rifled slugs are widely misperceived by shooters. And the very word rifled slug says why. If you've ever seen a shotgun slug that's rifled, you'll notice there's a raised rib on the shank of that slug. And they're kind of spiraled. So it says, well, that's going to make the thing spin like rifling wood with a bullet. But rifling in a barrel grips the bullet. The smoothbore shotgun does not really grip the rifling on a slug. So why is the rifling there? So that it will that slug will fit down different chokes. In the old days when they were shooting rifled slugs, or just any kind of a slug, you had a heck of a time getting a harder slug to go down a full choke barrel. So if you had a full choke barrel on your shotgun, you could get some serious pressure issues with a rifled slug that was really full size. 0.729 is nominal diameter of a 12-gauge bore. And if you happen to have a slug that was 0.730 or 0.731, and you cranked it through a full choke, which constricted that 729 down to way tighter than that, yikes. So what they did was they made the slug undersized, except for those ribs, the rifling ribs. They stick out enough to fill 7.730 or more. And then they squeeze down real easily because they're soft lead and there's not much to them. When they go through a tight choke, they will obturate or squeeze down to fit that and maintain a little more accuracy than they would if they really got scrunched down as a full slug would. That's why there are rifled slugs. That raised rib on those things does not spin them. It just enables them to go through the tighter chokes. <laughs> Glad you asked that question, Hammock. And... um yeah, anyone else out there who knows about rifle shotguns or slug shotguns in South Africa, um, clue us in if it's something different from what uh, Havoc said. But he says you don't have any rifle shotguns, so your only rifled slug is your only option. Um, probably. Of course, you can go with the Sabo slugs these days if they have those over there. And that's the plastic skirt around a subcaliber bullet. That's pretty popular these days over here. They can be a little bit more accurate than just straight-up old slugs, and they certainly shoot flatter and farther because they're lighter weight, they get more velocity, and they have a higher ballistics coefficient most of the time. All right, here is one from Anthony. Any advice on zeroing in a new AR-15? Yeah, I, I think so. One of the problems that most autoloaders have, or anything from a, but a bolt action or, say, a break action single shot, some, some sort of an action in a gun that does not allow you to look down the barrel to do your bore sighting, you've got a challenge. Um, but with an AR-15, you can remove the upper, and then you can look down your barrel. So that's what I would do. Mount your scope, take the upper off of the lower, and then set that on your sandbags. Look down the bore. Um, let me think. Yeah, this should work. Look down the bore, and then it's your standard thing. You center the target inside of the bore visually, just like looking through a peep sight, and then you turn your scope until the reticle is over the same spot. Then you should be on paper, certainly at 30 to 50 yards, 
probably at 100 yards. But if you want to play it safe, shoot your first target at 50 yards to stay on paper. And use a big sheet of paper just in case. Once you've put a hole in that paper, you can then dial the scope to go to the hole if you keep your barrel in the same location. So if the barrel's pointing at the bullseye, the bullet goes up here. Keep that barrel locked down, pointing at that bullseye. Turn the crossers on the scope until they cross the bullet hole. And then the barrel and the scope are both looking at the same place. That's how you can start sighting in your AR-15. All right, this, this is from Johan. Johan asks about the, oh, the Honig Rotary Round Action Rifle. That one is really popular. And what a incredible rifle action that is. He um, asks, do you have any more rare action rifles? The Honig Rotary Round Action Rifle is so interesting. Do you have any other recommendations for rare action rifles? Boy, Johan, I really don't, other than... And I actually, I saw these rifles at Honig. George Honig is the inventor and manufacturer of this Honig rotary round action rifle. I mean, this rifle is unique, absolutely one of a kind, um, unusual action. Just check my videos on the Honig rotary round action rifles. I've got a couple, three videos out there and several shorts, and it's just fascinating. But that gentleman is a Firearms mechanical genius, absolutely. I mean, he can create and design perfection. And he has a collection of old German rifles, including some Sours, that have some really interesting features. I'd love to get back over to his place and do some some videos on those particular rifles because there are some drillings and some fearlings and four-barreled rifles, shotgun combinations. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. And they've got some really innovative little tweaks and things to them like hidden compartments and different adjustments on the sights and protectors for the sights and all sorts of things that you don't usually see. But the actions are otherwise fairly typical. You know, bold actions, break actions, falling blocks and rolling blocks. And, you know, the, the rifles over the years that have been developed. And there were some rotary cylinder rifles like a revolver. They actually had rifles that were revolvers. Those didn't work out or last that long, but they were out there too. But there's nothing as unique as this Honig Rotary Round Action. That one is really spectacular. All right, SR82. This may be a silly question, but in regards to the 7mm PRC and the 7mm Remington Magnum, do both fire from the same gun and the same barrel, or do you have to modify the gun to fire each round? They look so different. Yeah, they absolutely look different, and that means you cannot shoot them in the same firearm. This is a common question for new shooters, so don't laugh at anybody who asks something like this and say, good, everybody knows that, because before we learned it, we didn't know it. And uh, 22 rimfire, for instance, can take 22 shorts, 22 longs, and 22 long rifles, uh, but not 22 Winchester Magnum rimfire cartridges. That. How do you people know that unless you start to learn it and someone tells you about it? And that's what we're going to do now here for this gentleman, SR-82. No, here's how all this stuff works, SR. When you have a rifle barrel, you chamber it, meaning you cut a space in the back that's like a shoe to fit the cartridge, like your foot. So your foot is the cartridge and it fits into your shoe. That's the chamber end of the barrel. And it has to be a precise fit. There's an itty bitty tiny little bit of space around the cartridge so it fits in. But then when you go bang, 
the pressure from that burning powder blows the brass out, tightly fit the wall so the gases don't come back toward you and drive the bullet out. So it gets all sealed up. That's the sort of the plasticity of the brass case. And that's why we use brass cases. Um, after the brass cools, which happens instantaneously, then it com- comes out because it's now a little bit smaller again. But you cannot stick a brass cartridge in a hole that's not shaped to that fit. You might get a smaller one in there. You might get one that's almost the same size that you can get to fit in. And and I and many others have done this. We, we will take a cartridge that almost fits properly, but there's a little more length in the, into the chamber or a little more width, and yet the bulk of the cartridge fits in there tightly enough so that the firing pin can strike the primer and ignite it, and then the brass flows to the new shape, or it splits in cracks or something else. <laughs> so crazy things can happen, but to be safe, you always want to read what's on the barrel for the chambering. It'll say 7mm rem mag. You're not going to shoot anything in there but a 7 rem mag. You might get a 7 Weatherby magnum to fit in there or vice versa or something, but to be safe, always put the right cartridge in. And on the cartridge itself, you look at the head stamp. That's at the base of the cartridge. And you'll notice a little lettering and such on there, and it'll say the numbers and the name of the cartridge. So you got to make sure that stuff matches up. Or you might do an accidental, oops, it fit, but it really shouldn't have. <laughs> and then you've got problems. So yeah, got to have the right chamber for the right cartridge. All right, Mr. Michael asks, I have a few questions about the 7 millimeter PRC. This thing is getting a lot of attention here now that they're finally out with it. What is the overall cartridge length? Ah, how will it be on barrel life with a typical load? What range does Hornaday's hits suggest are the limits for elk? And how about for deer? Oh, my goodness. You've got all kinds of questions about this PRC, Michael. All right, I can tell you the 7 uh, PRC is standard length action, 30-06, same length. 3.340, I think, overall length. So it's going to fit in the standard length action rifles. It's fatter than the 30-06. That's how it gets its extra horsepower. More room for the powder. How's it going to be on barrel life with a typical load? Oh, gosh. I think it'll be about like the 7 rem mags. Have the pretty similar volume. I have maybe a couple, three grains more powder. So it's going to be right in that range of the 7 rem mag or the 7ST. It'll have more life than the STW. That has more powder capacity. But the WSM, 7 millimeters, about the same. So... You know, it'll be nothing to worry about for for hunting. Target shooters will probably go through barrels fairly quickly. I don't know. Depends on the barrel steel, whether or not it's chrome lined. A lot of things that impact barrel life. But I would guess somewhere in the 1500 shot range. Um, But again, it depends on how quickly you shoot. And if you go bang and then, let's say you do three shots in a minute and you do that for a box, you're going to heat that barrel up and, The hotter the barrel is when you shoot each subsequent shot, the faster it erodes. So keep it cool, and you can get more life out of that barrel. What was your other question? At what range does Hornady's hits suggest a limit for elk? You know, I'm not even familiar with Hornady's hits. It must be some web calculator that calculates the remaining energy in a particular load and bullet at range, and when it falls below a standard, and I would guess it's probably 1,500 foot-pounds for elk-sized animals and 1,000 foot-pounds for deer, that's pretty commonly used as a standard. And then when you reach that level of energy, 
because you've wasted it pushing air out of the way. Um, that's what they would say would be your maximum range for effectively taking game when you hunt. I don't look at it that way so much because I don't like to shoot things so far away that that's happening. I like to keep my distances close enough that I don't even have to worry about remaining energy in the bullet. And I also don't believe those numbers are absolute because I know they're not. Plenty of deer and elk have been taken with bullets landing and carrying a lot less than a thousand foot pounds of energy when they got there. It doesn't take all that much energy to penetrate to an animal's vitals and disrupt them, causing hemorrhaging, and that's what kills the animal. That's why bow hunters can launch an arrow that, gosh, you're lucky if you're carrying 140 foot-pounds of energy. They don't have any trouble killing stuff with them because they're superb at hemorrhaging. So uh, I don't know how excited I would worry about that thing. And I I always discourage long-range shooting, not because I'm on my moral high horse and I'm going to condemn anybody who does it, but there are just so many different things that enter into precision shooting at long range that you just cannot depend on, especially in a hunting scenario. It's one thing to be on the target range and screw up and miss a target or hit the edge of it, but on a game animal... And the other thing is that steel plates don't move while you're saying, I'm going to shoot now, pulling the trigger, the lock time, the bullet leaving the barrel, the flight time till it gets there. A deer can easily take a step or two while all that happens, and then you end up with a wounding shot, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I'm not white snow blameless here. I have tried a long shot, a couple of them. I've tried a couple 500s, and I did one at 777 yards, for which I've taken 777 lashes from various people out there condemning me for that stupidity. But I got my deer. (laughs) But it doesn't mean I'm going to do it all the time. I just figured I needed to have a little experience along that line in order to pontificate. So, uh, yeah, don't don't freak out too much about that. The 7 PRC cartridge was designed for precision long-range performance, but that doesn't mean you have to hunt that way. All right, Joshua asks, how did they calculate velocity before instruments or chronographs, electronic chronographs? A chronograph works by reading light. A light changes and it turns on a timer, and then when the bullet passes over the second measuring device called a screen, it then switches the the uh, timer off. So you can imagine a timer, my God, to time a 4,000 feet per second bullet in about a four foot span. Man, that's a fast clock and some fast screens to capture it. All they're doing is seeing the shadow of the bullet passing over. This is crazy. I just marvel at some of the technology we've developed, especially things that work with light because it's so fast. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So anyway, The bullet in a modern chronograph passes over that first little trap, that light screen, and it goes, start the the clock, clickety, clickety, clickety. The microseconds are clicked off, and then it passes over the next little trap, and that shadow says, turn the uh, the, uh, clock off. Now, do the math and calculate how fast that bullet was going. (laughs) Thank goodness they can do it, because the old ways involved a lot more stuff. Let's see if I can explain this. It seems to me I did one of these not too long ago, but it's a good question. It comes up fairly often. They made, think of uh, the axle with two wheels on it, like on the back of a car or a truck. Take that axle off and the two wheels. Over the wheels, make cardboard discs on which you have a target and, and make them perfectly matched up. So they're both spinning exactly the same. Shoot, and your bullet hole passes through one. 
And before it gets to the second one, it has moved a little bit. There's your measurement distance where that second hole is on that second disc. You compare those two holes, you make your measurements, you do the math, and you figure out how fast that bullet was going. That was one way they did it. Another one was a known weight on your pendulum. So you've got a big, heavy target hanging there. You hit it with your bullet, and it goes, ah, ah. and the distance at which it gets pushed back could have been calculated or was calculated against the energy required to move it that far. And they could figure out the velocity of the bullet based on its weight mass when it hit the target. Lots of complicated numbers there. This is why children, (laughs) boys and girls, you should pay attention in math class because this stuff actually comes in handy for developing uh, along these lines. So guys like me who didn't pay attention in math class can buy a chronograph and get it done for him. (laughs) But those are a couple of the ways they did it, Joshua. Thank goodness we don't have to do it that way anymore. All right. Cell rod 55. Does the 6.5 have the same sectional density for larger game? Well, he's meaning the 6.5 bullet. The uh, 0.264 inch diameter bullets used in the Creedmoor and the PRC and the 264 wind mag and the 65300 Weatherby and all the the 26 Nas. All these 26s, all the 6.5s. Is there good sectional density. Well, sure. You get sectional density, length of the bullet, diameter of the bullet, and slice it in half, and you get the sectional density calculation from that. Uh, The interesting thing about sectional density is that um, the length of the bullet really doesn't matter. It's the mass, the weight of the bullet, and its diameter. So a 180-grain bullet, whether it's a long, sleek, high BC bullet or a short fat, round nose, or flat nose bullet, they both have the same sectional density. Uh, Yet they're both not that long that you're going to have that much shank weight necessarily driving them forward. So it's not really a reliable number because the shape of the bullet changes it so much. But the idea is that high sectional density in a bullet will give it more mass after it's expanded and lost some of its nose lead uh, it will have enough mass in its shank to keep driving forward. So does a 6.5 have that? Yeah, you get some long 6.5 bullets, and they have some significant sectional density because uh, they're just a long, dense bullet. Um, if made right, the same process you know, is going to work on all of it. And in fact, Karamojo Bell, and I bring this guy up quite a bit because he is just such a uh, figure in in hunting with light calibers. He was an elephant hunter during the commercial ivory years, way back when, 1908, that time. And he used the 7 by 57 Mauser with 173 grain bullet to brain shoot elephants. This was back in the day when they were shooting half pounds of lead out of slug guns and stuff to try to get elephants. Well, he just figured out that bullet had enough sectional density and velocity to penetrate to the brain through a lot of bone. He also used some 6.5, specifically 6.5 Manlik or Schonauer, which has less energy, less velocity than the 6.5 Creedmoor to give you an idea of the effectiveness of these bullets. They would reach the brain. He took something like 300 elephants with that before he gave it up because some of the bullets were bending on their way in, just a little bit too thin in cross-section, and they bent. So... That'll tell you what your potential for penetration is from the right 6.5 bullet. Now, I think this is our last question, it looks like, from Lindsay. Why does every caliber Weatherby make use slow-burning powder and kick like a mule? I'm not being a smartass here. I'm honestly wondering. Well, first of all, I don't think they kick like a mule. 
I haven't found any of them that kick like a mule, although the 378 was a bit of a punch, and I haven't shot the 460 yet. I heard that does kick like mm, at least a small horse, if not a mule. But no, not every Weatherby uh, cartridge kicks like a mule, uh, but they use slow-burning powder because there's pretty good volume in most of them, magnums, belted magnums most of the time. Um, but they're throwing heavier bullets. The thing with burning powder rates, slower burning powders are used to start a heavier bullet for caliber for any cartridge. So in a, say a 30 caliber, like the 30 out six, if you're shooting a 220 grain bullet, you're going to use a slower burning powder than if you're shooting a 125 grain bullet because of inertia. It takes more oomph to get that heavy bullet started. It's like pushing a big old truck versus a kid in a little cart. You've got a lot more weight to break the inertia of sitting still. Once you get it going, wow, away it goes, and it continues going that way, inertia. So if you use a fast-burning powder behind a big heavy bullet, you raise your pressures to dangerous levels unless you reduce the quantity of that powder. So that's why they use slow-burning powders. It gets those big bullets moving properly without raising pressures too much. And um, yeah, that's what I can tell you about the Weatherby cartridges. They make them right. They make them fast. And yep, they're magnums. And they do have a little bit of recoil. All right. Hey, those were great questions. Those were great corrections today, guys. I hope you enjoyed the program. And once again, I will look forward to your questions for the next time around and your corrections. We appreciate you watching and listening. Do uh, check out Ron Spomer Outdoors website. Buy yourself a cup or two for Christmas and get one for Grandpa. We'll see you next time. Hunters and shoot straight. Mm-hmm.